Hey, welcome to the Stories Through the Camera podcast, episode four. My name is Chris Butel, and in this episode, we're going to be sitting down with Dean Francis, who is the director, cinematographer, producer, and co-writer of the Aussie independent feature film, Drown. In this episode, we discuss how Dean's experience directing his first film influenced his approach to this film. What makes a Dean Francis film the influences of the prolific German filmmaker Werner Herzog, as well as how making a movie can be therapeutic. I actually met Dean at film school. He was teaching a couple of directing classes at the time and had been my supervisor on one of my first ever short films. So it was really great catching up with him again. If you'd like to see the movie Drown, you can go to www.drownthemovie.com where you can either rent or buy the film. I'll also put a trailer and link to the film in this episode show notes at www.storiesthroughthecamera.com. Okay, that's enough plugs and uh, preamble. Please enjoy the episode. I had a lot of fun catching up with Dean. We had a really great conversation. So hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, how you doing, Dean? I'm well. How are you, Chris? Yeah, really good. Thanks for taking the time to do this. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Um, so for those who haven't seen the film or perhaps saw it uh, a little while ago, could you tell me, uh, sort of give me a bit of a synopsis of what Drown is and um, yeah, what it means to you? Sure. Well, Drown is set in a kind of cloistered outer suburban surf lifesaving club in Sydney. And uh, it tells the story of... Uh, of a very heroic sort of Aussie legend kind of a bloke uh, and a younger gay surf lifesaver joins his surf lifesaving club and it kind of brings out all this nasty homophobia which kind of forces him to eventually confront the reason for this intense homophobia and it is that he has this intense kind of unrequited attraction to this this younger guy which kind of sends him into a into a spiral of, of, of negativity and violence and it all goes terribly wrong at the end mm. I found I saw the um, you've got several sort of variant posters on your website which I kind of want to talk about in a little bit but uh, one of the interesting things is it says drown and then you know a Dean Francis film and um, I actually went back and watched some of your uh, Vimeo shorts on on Vimeo, and I it does strike me as uh, a Dean Francis film. Not only, as I said, because you're a cinematographer and producer and and, and co-writer, and obviously the director, but um, I watched that uh, Boys Grammar film, and there was um, stylistically, you know, not only from, from the content, but also stylistically how it was directed. I found there was a lot of parallels, like the. Um, I'm thinking about that specific shot where the the sort of main character is standing on the the diving board, and you have this close up of his chest, and you can see all the goosebumps, you know, on on his you know, pecs. <laughs> and and there's some sort of, and often it it almost feels sort of um, claustrophobic and almost like this sort of fever dream, you know, that the people sort of feel de- de- detached sometimes, like the audio's out of sync and and that sort of stuff. So I guess um, my question really is, what you know, what is what is your values or what are you interested in uh, when making films and, and what do you think makes a Dean Francis film? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Um, I mean, it's interesting, the parallels of Boy's Grammar. Mm. There's actually also a like direct shot reference, like mm. the shot from Boy's Grammar is the shot 
from Drown in one instance. And of course, Matt Levette uh, is yeah. the, is a is a uniting theme. Matt Levette's the protagonist in Boys Grammar. He is this victim of this terrible kind of machismo bullying in Boys Grammar, and on Drown, he's he's in the the reverse mm. role, mm. which is you know it's kind of that idea of there's a cycle of, mm. of bullying. And of course, Anthony Phelan plays uh, Matt's father in both films as mm. well. You know, I felt like um, that when you know when I was making short films like as a teenager, and then later in film school, I. You know, sort of was was exploring a very particular kind of story and way of telling the stories, and and themes uh, emerged for me that were of great kind of personal interest and were personal to me. You know, uh, and and really, themes for me are questions. You know, like questions that I have about the world, about how people interact with each other in the world that I want to explore and and kind of find my working answer to through um, dramatizing those and then I felt like you know when I came out of film school and I, I made a film called Road Train which was my first feature film but it was kind of a gun for hire type project yeah, big genre piece right yeah exactly I felt like that kind of got a bit interrupted and so mm. for a long time I sort of on one hand was sort of like living in the shadow of being this like genre director and was on a lot of genre projects but there was always this part of my creativity that really wanted to get back to that darker drama uh, stuff of exploring questions that that were personal to me and so I think Drown was kind of breaking breaking back out of that genre mode and getting into like more of a personal mode of storytelling and you know for that reason it had to be um, kind of done done the way that it was um, and you know I feel like that freed me up a lot and so now uh, I've, I've I kind of have got both aspects to my filmmaker identity I suppose I still enjoy genre and I feel I can kind of do that because I'm not as much the genre guy as I might have been back in 2010 Mm. yeah it's interesting like not only did the subject matter you know change drastically and and the genre of the type of film but as you just touched on the the way in which you went about making the film you know was it 2010 you you started on drown no 2012 2013 probably yeah I think it was I think it was shooting in 2013. Yeah, and at the time, you know, doing a, a crowdfunding model was was pretty radically new, right? Can, yeah. Can you tell me a bit about, um, you know, the, the decision to go down that route, how you, if you knew it would be successful and, and some of those decisions? Yeah, well, like you say, it was it was a bit less of a cliche than it might might have become since. Yeah. Um, but it was really the decision of, of you know, like I, I felt – really passionate about making a film first of all I was and then when I found the material which was Stephen Davis's incredible play Drown which it was based on and you know it just like that was all I felt I needed you know because I had the passion to do this and it was like we're going to do it so then, then it's just a question of how and of course crowdfunding was was kind of new at that point um and we also really realized that it was always going to be a, a confronting film, and confronting mm. films are a tough sell. So we would have to build a community around not only the film but the kind of social issue of the film from the get-go in order to have an audience, to mm. build an audience. So it, it struck me and Stephen that um, that was just a logical kind of starting point to do that. And if we actually did make any money through the crowdfunding, then that would be kind of a bonus. Interesting, right. You know, yeah. and, and we I don't think we ever really felt like we'd fund the whole film with crowdfunding. Yeah. 
I mean, I think we put up a very ambitious target of like $100,000 on Indiegogo. And I think we got, I think we raised something like 13,000 US. Still pretty good. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was certainly got us started yeah. for sure. And, and what was interesting was that it sort of put us on the radar of a lot of people who helped us get there with the film. Mm. For example, other private investors and sales companies and things like that. So, and of course it drew a lot of people who, yeah, helped in a lot of different ways. Yeah, that's really cool. So, so you know, your, your primary motivation wasn't simply like, oh, we just need to fund this thing, but it was actually engaging an audience, you know, before the camera started rolling and, and um, trying to get them in touch with the subject matter. That's Well, yeah, yeah and, and also to testing out the marketing kind of pitch on mm. it. And, of course, in order to get the crowdfunding page up, we had to shoot a thing. And that was a, a brilliant process because we shot a two-minute sort of like trailer based on the feature script, which also starred Matt Lovett. So it was like his opportunity to test out the character, our opportunity to sort of test out a few of the aesthetic choices and yeah, stuff sure. like that. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was kind of a, um, yeah, like a sort of proof of concept uh, mm. in a lot of ways. Yeah, right. And so you mentioned uh, Stephen was was the playwright, and that was mm. up in Queensland that was put on? Yeah, it was a Queensland theatre company play that Michael Gow directed in about 2000. Yeah, cool. And um, so can you talk to me a little bit about, uh, I haven't seen the play, but can you talk to me a little bit about how you translated um, the play into, you know, a cinematic uh, medium? What, what were some of the choices you and Stephen were, were the, some of the discussions you and Stephen were having um, during that process? Yeah, um, well, it was the play, of course, like a lot of plays, most plays, uh, was it's just all dialogue, really. Mm. It's, it was 50 pages of dialogue. It all took place on this beach at night. Um, and it was really between two of the characters, Meet and Len, because Phil was unconscious for, for pretty much the whole the whole piece. Um, and so the question is, how do you, you know, and that was on one level appealing to me because it's limited cast, limited location, you know, I naively thought, how hard can it be to just shoot on a beach at night for three weeks? Little did I know, it's actually the worst. If you go back and watch the uh, the production <laughs> diaries, you can you can Absolute see how difficult nightmare. that can be. Yeah. Oh yeah, but and but but you know, at the same time as that, you have this problem of of how do you keep the audience, particularly in this day and age where we're so used to cut, 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 and you mm-hmm. know, how do you keep it? In how do you keep the audience engaged? But how do you um, convey this the largeness of of the external world because the external world that Len inhabits is really one of the main antagonists, you know, um, and all the, all the people who are kind of keeping him down in that world. But how do you convey the, the, the internal psychological world, Mm. uh, which is really important, um, you know, that it's a very subjective story. We see the world through his perspective. And so to sort of start off that development process, uh, Stephen was was great. He just said, um, "Why don't you just you know r- just just write anything you want?" Was pretty much, and and then I would take stuff to Stephen. So I started with backstory. So mm. where did Lenny come from? The biggest question mark was around Phil. So Phil's this unconscious guy on the beach. I don't think there was any reference made to Phil's sexuality in the play, it, aside from like the you know Len would would taunt him and insult him and use you know these homophobic slurs towards him. But I decided that that was going to be the the main dramatic conflict was mm. actually that Phil was gay and that was the the kind of inciting incident for Len's descent. 
Um, and so then you you ask, well, who is Phil? Where does he come from? Who, who, do, you know, what's his life like? So then it occurs, well, then he's got to have a boyfriend. Let's do that. Because so, that creates more, you know, another obstacle for Len. Um, so we invented, or I invented uh, Tom, the, the boyfriend character. Then, okay, the next thing is to move into the more immediate backstory. What happened right before they were on the beach? Mm. There's a few clues to that in the, in the play, but not all that many. So we decided what, what's, put, what's put Len in this state where he's going to do all these things on the beach? Okay, they found themselves at a gay bar, you know. How's that happened? You yeah. Know, then you kind of work backwards. That's from one of those there. great ideas you have. You're like, they found themselves at a gay bar. And, you know, <laughs> Len, who is one of the, you know, to, to get him to that point, I think that's, you know, once that light bulb goes off, I'm sure as a rider, that's when you start to get really excited. <laughs> well, yeah, then, because then you've got to go, well, why are they at a gay bar? Yeah. You know, um, what, what's happened right before? And then you throw in this idea of, because of, one of the things that is fascinating to me is that, of course, the, the competitive nature of the kind of world of surf life saving, it's not just about saving lives, it's about who's the best at it. Mm. You know, so, so that brings in a thing, there's a surf life saving competition. Well, th- there's two surf life saving competitions. There's one to establish that Len's the champion, and of course, then there's the downfall—the one that he is expected to win but doesn't win because mm-hmm. the new the new kid wins. So, so you end up with all these different layers that that are all designed to put your protagonist into this absolutely unwinnable situation where they have they just lack any capacity to to properly deal with the situation, and you know that's the mind explosion moment you know that that, that we we kind of build up to in the piece, but. The 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 uh, sort of aspects that that we're left with is still these incredibly long passages of dialogue, which were part of the play, and and are really kind of poetic. They're very heightened. They're, they're in no way are they naturalistic. You would mm. not find guys from you know the outer suburban surf clubs speaking like speaking that. Speaking in that way, yeah. But they're 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 brilliant and and they're you know super insightful. And that Stephen's voice in the piece. So how do you then sort of find a tone for the piece where that heightened dialogue kind of fits in with a more kind of cinema verite sort of observational style in which you want to explore the realism of kind of that world? Mm. That was sort of the challenge. And and so that led into – and then, of course, you've got issues of pace and, and consistency in the film – so all this sort of led me to feel like there was absolutely a non-linear element to the story and and um, uh, it almost like you have a two-page dialogue scene on the beach which raises a question that's kind of addressed in going like back two months or something like that. Yeah. So then it was just a question of how, how you contain it, how you keep it sort of clear but not too clear you know, still keeping the audience guessing and a lot of that structural kind of stuff. And, of course, a lot of people, like, sort of come to screenings and they assume that, um, oh, you just, you know, completely did all this in the edit because you're, you know, your your script didn't work. Or but actually, I, I kid you not, pretty much the script that we had mm. is the script that we ended up cutting to, which is unusual. Yeah, well, there's very specific uh, even cuts within the film where, you know, uh, you know, visually it's answering the previous scene of them on the beach, you know, then it's cutting to say Len, you know, screaming once he's being lifted up, but the, once he wins the, the surf life saving competition, for example. So 
yeah, that's that's interesting that people would think you just <laughs> saved it in the edit. Oh, you know, there's plenty of films that have just saved in the edit. That's for you're sure. You're like that's an yeah. that's an insult to me as a director, but uh, <laughs> credit to me as an as an editor. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the the things for me when I was like, um, I was like, this probably wasn't in the play was when um, Len is just there's like a, a couple shots of him just working at, at the tip, you know, and <laughs> he's um he's with meat and uh, meat's sort of dressed in drag. And, uh, you know, Matt throws him on his shoulder and he's sort of like at, at the height of um, joy when all these guys are, you know, celebrating him. And then it just cuts to a couple of, you know, quiet shots of him just working at the tip, holding a fence or something. And I found that was um, really like interesting choice cinematically and, and really made you empathize with Lenny's um, plight, I guess, that you you really understand why he puts so much value on, you know, being the best and being perceived as the strongest, the fastest, you know, amongst mm. his peers. Um, yeah, I just found that found that really interesting. Yeah, that, that confuses the hell out of a lot of, you know, like people view films very literally or, mm. or with, with a real hunger for like everything's symbolic and people had this real, oh, like it's on IMDb or something, like people, oh, what the hell did that mean? Like that was so out of place. But you're, I'm really glad that you picked up on that idea of because it's of empathy, you know, because it, it it's you know it's actually quite hard when you have a character who who is as violent and yeah, mean, really. How yeah. do you like him? And a lot of that was actually some of that voiceover that you hear at the start, understanding for the audience that he thinks he he hates himself, mm. you know, uh, which again isn't something that's really going to necessarily encourage empathy, but. But to know that he's having a real mental health struggle in the background of all this is like yeah. kind of part of it. And the, the, obviously there is some symbolism in terms of him being behind the fence and the garbage tip and stuff. But yeah. Yeah. I I um, was reminded by that that scene you showed us in film school where Werner Herzog is washing down Harmony Corinne. Um, <laughs> you know, you sort of uh, did your little homage to that as well. You know, the, uh, when, when uh, Matt, Matt Levette's being a sprayed down... <laughs> Uh, I love. I, I don't I've know how many people mentioned got that. that. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that from Julian Donkey Boy. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I definitely thought of that scene. I've always wanted to do that. Yeah, awesome. I, was, I um, I don't. Have you ever seen that show, Rick and Morty? The uh, it's like a cartoon. Uh, oh yeah, show. yeah. There's Werner Herzog actually makes a uh, a small cameo on it, and uh, he he plays this alien, and the alien says something along the lines of. Um, Humans, they are only concerned about their penises. Uh, <laughs> it's funny when it's a pencil. It's funny when it's, you know, it's a, a flask or, or whatever. And um, and I was reminded, you know, once again by Werner, Her- Werner Herzog, you know, in, in this film because all the dudes in the um, in, in the film in, in some way, shape or form are kind of obsessed with their penises, you know, whether it's um, Meat who's, you know, he's being teased when he's a young boy and... Um, what, what's your thought process? You know, you may like, there's so many scenes when there's dudes, uh, referencing their penises. It's kind of big in this sort of bro culture. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What, like, why do you think that exists in, in certain worlds and, and amongst men? Uh, gosh, that's a big question. I don't know. I mean, I, I suspect it's that the penis is, it's a, it's a kind of a weapon and a tool that men used to fortify themselves against uh you know against accusations of femininity mm. um i don't know it's it's it is just the most 
potent symbol of masculinity. I mean, you know, masculinity itself is this kind of wafer-thin concept, really, when you think about it. Um, so I, I think anything you can kind of hang on to to, to sort of strengthen it, I, you know, I guess that's, that's it. I don't know. I don't have a theory. I mean, a lot of a lot of what you see in Drown is kind of just based on my observations of that kind of full male culture. Mm. But um, Lenny's character is just so determined to prove himself as a man. It's almost like he feels he's, um, you know, he's awakening, you know, or feeling his homosexual feelings, you know, and uh, he feels like that that can't be um, he can't be both a man and you know homosexual it's like the two things can't coincide it's it's really interesting yeah, yeah. i i think that i think that's kind of true and and also too he can't um y- you know i think the problem for len is that he's got this very narrow very specific notion of what he should be mm. which is heroic fast straight all these sorts of things uh and the and there's no gray areas you either are or kind of you aren't and that's kind of his upbringing um, you know, but it's it's the terror of that of that self image starting to crack. Mm. Um, and once the cracks start, there's no stopping it. The whole thing kind of crumbles, and the more desperate you become to defend yourself from that, and um, and the more extreme your actions have to be. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's like often the uh, you know the the Southern Baptist pastor or, or the the most homophobic person that you know. Sometimes it's revealed that they're, you know, they're harboring these, you know, thoughts and emotions themselves, but they're railing against it so so hard. It's really interesting phenomenon. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think they've done <laughs> tests on that. I yeah. I believe where you know they show gay porn to home like homophobic people, and you know, apparently the more homophobic the person is, the more aroused they'll become at gay porn. Yeah, right. So. There you go. I, I think, it, it, yeah, it, ma- it makes sense to me. Yeah. Do you, have you come, uh, after making the film, had you sort of come to any conclusions or had you learnt anything? Um, I'm, I'm talking more thematically on, on the questions that you were asking, you know, within the piece. Were there sort of any big takeaways or even the way people have responded to the film that you've sort of found re- kind of remarkable? Yeah, I think they have. I mean, the first thing was that I was really worried during the film that the, that it was or before making the film that it was just over the top. It was some kind of demented fantasy about straight straight sports culture. Mm. But the more we went into the world, the more I realized that actually no, it was really it was actually we could have been a lot ha- harsher, you know, about that kind of culture because it was everywhere like we would get We'd get we you know we got everything happened to us during the shoot. We got assaulted on the streets. We got you know strip searched by cops at Mardi Gras. We got crap thrown at us. We got you know homophobic comments made, you know yelled at us by lifesavers. Like the whole thing, it was crazy. Going through into the kind of distribution phase and and being lucky to kind of take it around the world as I did. I you know the film very much found an audience in the LGBTI kind of space. And I found, again, I was sh- kind of shocked and kind of saddened by the fe- the main feedback that people s- felt like it was very, very true and very um, uh, within their experiences, unfortunately, mm. as victims of this of this violence. And on one hand, that's 
kind of good as a filmmaker, but I started to get really depressed screening the film, to be honest. And like crazy things would happen. Like I got assaulted like by this woman at a Italian film festival who was like super angry with Len and and I've had people have real emotional reactions during screenings and we did this really great series of screenings actually down here in the JJ Splice basement where we'd just have an audience of 30 people and we'd have a really intense, really personal Q&A afterwards over wine and it would go for hours sometimes wow, and it was yeah. like a therapy session. Yeah, It was really, really, really interesting. But, but it just made me th- really, th- um, you know, think about the power of film to make connections but just also made me feel personally like it's about time to like tell a happier story. <laughs> like I can't keep doing this depressing, like even though it might be true, mm-hmm. I want to do something that empowers, particularly within the LGBT space. There's not enough stories out there which are actually celebrations of uh, LGBT identity. Yeah, right. And I imagine, uh, you know, attending all these screenings as well. That's, you know, most of the time you sort of make a film, release it, maybe attend a dozen screenings or something and then it's out in the world and in theaters everywhere but um you sort of took the film around almost like in a roadshow fashion right like you'd you'd sort of i remember seeing several things on facebook like you'd gone up the coast to a you know somewhere or you'd you'd head over to some country and and attend a bunch of screenings and imagine that would be pretty emotionally tolling to you know as you said almost have these mini therapy sessions after each each uh, screening yeah but it was it was really fascinating i mean to me it's it's like one of the most satisfying things to to just see it washing over the audience and, and mm-hmm. having that impact but you know i i was really keen to to just see how it would be different in different cultures and things uh and it was you know in europe of course very different energy in the room to the United States or or certainly here but but the heaviest experiences were definitely locally where people just really took it on like oh my god you know but yeah it was it was a good release i think in the end yeah i want to talk more about um the release and the response and stuff but i guess um taking a step back from like the thematic stuff i'd be really interested in talking a bit more about like the mechanics of um making the film so um you had sort of said before, like you, once you'd sort of found the, the material and, and had done a couple passes, you know, writing on it, you were like, oh, this film's going to get made. It's just, you know, whether it's crowdfunding or whether it's some other way, you know, I'm going to get it made. So um, once you'd made that decision, what, what were some of the, the steps you went about, you know, getting it off the ground? Who were the like key creatives you were bringing on, you know, early in the process? Well, the first was the cast, and I had like ha- like known Matt Lavette for years, like I say, since Boys Grammar, which I think was his first screen role and like my first actors film. And um, you know, once you have your lead actor, you know, th- a lot of things become easier. The huge advantage that I had at the time was that I was teaching at a, f- a film school, actually, in fact, a couple, and um, and I had this great graduating class. I was the directing teacher, and they were about to graduate, and. And they were all going to be unemployed over the summer, and so, and I just knew they all wanted to just work on a feature film, mm. um, and so I kind of felt like people would be interested in like volunteering and putting you know themselves into the process over the summer, which they were, 
Um, so then it was just the question of, all right, like going through and looking, like it was a bit sinister, like looking at all the students' films going, now that guy's really good at production design. Let's, let's go up to him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and we'd do things like, like invite everyone to the pub and like pitch the film to the student body and they'd like get super excited and they'd be queuing up to try and sign up to do something. And, and that was kind of, it was, a, it made, gave it a really nice community feel because we knew we'd seen, we'd seen these, um, young filmmakers come through the film school over the last two years and we'd kind of grown with them and it was quite a small film school um so there was already a lot of like trust and um and a lot of passion as well for that so none of that was really hard it was more stuff like um practical annoying things like where's the office going to be so we we found some filmmakers who who had some space in their office and we crashed with them for a little while and then we we moved somewhere else and we were just constantly trying to get people excited about the idea of doing a film that addresses bullying and homophobia and also using the media as well and trying to draw attention to the cast um, and and sort of just really once you get people behind it who talk to their friends, it the whole thing kind of just really builds really. Mm. And aside from that, I mean, I just didn't want to have any of the restrictions that I had previously had on films. So I wanted to make sure that we could own as much of the equipment and facilities that instead of renting because that way you know if you need to extend or you need to take a different approach you can actually do that and that actually gives you a bit more freedom to experiment because you know you've got a bit of a safety net you can extend the day or you can do another day on the side or what have you yeah um but you know still i was very much learning i had never like shot a feature film like as a dp yeah before either um so it was a Which lot is a, of trial and a error. Huge, huge job in and of itself. But then to also be, help, you know, creating this crowdfunding campaign and producing the film, and you know, pro- I imagine you're probably still doing passes on it as a writer, and then thinking about your directorial style <laughs> amongst all those things. So it's a lot of uh, plates to spin, or you know, balls to juggle. I'd imagine. Yeah. yeah, it it was. I was busy. Yes. Yeah. But what was interesting was like because the producing was definitely the hardest part of it, mm. um, just all that logistics and problems and worrying and things like that. And I kept on sort of, you know, because of course I always felt like the, well the most important thing is just to get to day one on set. You know, once you get to day one, you know, you'll the find a way. The station and it'll start to you know. That's what yeah, I. That's what I realize yeah. exactly. So so. So, you know, my day would like start off, I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna, just going to do this producing things. Then, I, then I'm going to work on my shot list and all my directing stuff. I'm going to do my directing breakdowns and all that stuff. But, of course, you'd never get to that bit of the day because things, you know, things would happen. So I never really – I think I got about halfway through this, the script doing a shot list or maybe not even that. So it, eventually it was just like no, like, almost like going in without really any – like of the conventional preparation that you would – do uh as a director but of course having spent so long on the script and and been involved in it so intimately it actually became a way more intuitive like gut reaction process responding to what was there in front of you in the scene responding to what the actors brought in much more so than any other other time before and looking back on it now i think that gave the film a very different like visual flavor Mm. it was less locked in and and much more um, by the seat. Yeah, it was an diff- interesting, different way to work, and it, which taught me a lot actually about it. And it's definitely informed work I've done since. I don't know. It was interesting. What does it teach you? Well, it teaches you that that sometimes. 
that there are different ways of knowing things. Like sometimes you might know the shots that you want to shoot, but you might not be all that clear on what the the deeper purpose is of the scene. What quite aside from the surface things of like, okay, a character with an objective or what have you, there's often something deeper about a scene that needs to come across. In some ways, it's more important to unlock that deeper meaning of the scene than it is to know what your coverage is going to look like. Because once you have that fundamental understanding, particularly in terms of like subtext and, you know, how it relates to theme, where, you know, where it takes you with, with the arc, all those things. Um, is there a specific example you, you can think of, you know, when you're shooting? Yeah, I think there was like a breakthrough moment actually, which mm. was a scene we were shooting in the very first week of the film. And in the film, I think it happens about halfway through it. It's a scene where um, Phil has been beaten up by Lenny and that he's taking a shower in an outdoor shower as the sun is going down and, and Matt Matt's character, Len, comes up behind him. And it's kind of a moment where they face off and symbolically Matt reaches out and passes him a bottle of white rum, which is the uh, which is a reference to of course the the beach at night scenes. The final climax of the film involves that same bottle. And of course there's all that that I you know, of course alcohol and drink and everything in the film represents the bond of mateship. So there was a kind of loaded element to the scene that that was deeply connected with like so many bits of the film but it was one of those scenes that you know we were running out of time uh plans didn't come about that week the weather wasn't where we wanted it to be it was cloudy and stuff like that and I didn't have any sort of a plan and I think it was like a breakthrough moment where I just took the camera off of the sticks and just started to point it around and just find kind of the frame and ended up shooting quite a lot of stuff and ended up kind of uh, realizing there was like a little step up to the shower and finding that there was this, there were some great opportunities to use like high angle and low angle and then to change the level of the camera to just like a sort of elevation moves. And that actually that one pivotal moment that I discovered was actually the turning point of Phil's journey. Hmm. That, that I just thought it was a simple scene about Len's regret about Phil, but by finding that camera move that I discovered doing a handheld shot on a step, that moment became the moment in the film where Phil went from victim yeah. to aggressor. Yeah, right. You know, and it's still one of my, I think visually it's one of my favorite films. But from there on, again, week one, I was like, well, that's that's the visual style of the film that I've been trying to pin down is is up and down is floating handheld vibe pull focus you know crazy focus pulls and Mm. that was just a yeah that was an interesting moment i thought that's really interesting that as you said such a pivotal moment character moment at least for phil's character was found really organically you know with you experimenting i really like that that you know I thought the the guy who played Phil was fantastic, and as you just said, I like that he wasn't a victim the whole time. Um, but there there's some interesting motivations he has as well, where you kind of go, oh, he, he even though Lenny's just bashed him up, he still seems to be, you know, why is he? What's his motivation here? You know, and it's quite engaging because you think, is Phil sort of onto something? Does he have feel, you know feelings for Lenny? Is he trying to unlock something uh, in Lenny? You know. So, but it's interesting that such a pivotal point, you know, was found 
<laughs> you know, with years sort of experimenting almost. Yeah, well, yeah. Jack Matthews plays Phil, and he's uh, such a fantastic, like, incredible actor. He brought so much to the role, and this was really evident. We did a, an open casting call, and, uh, you know, he just didn't want to lie down. He just, you know, bit back, you know, so hard. And for a character who spends a lot of the film getting beaten up and everything – it's so important that it's not a one-dimensional uh, character. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. no, Jack Matthews is, uh, I think, an absolutely amazing young actor, emerging mm. actor. Yeah. Um, so once again, just um, moving back to sort of the mechanics of things. So you'd, um, you've sort of done your proof of concept uh, and have an Indiegogo campaign going. But I, I noticed on the, um, the production diaries that you were, you were doing that um, you know, you still had an office, you still sort of had a, a production coordinator and a location scout and, and stuff like that. So for a film that was operating on, you know, what seemed to be quite a, a, a modest budget, you were, it seems that you're still sort of crossing the T's and dotting the I's, so to speak, that, you know, you're doing things. It wasn't just you going, okay, I've got a camera, let's go film stuff. You were still, <laughs> um, I mean, maybe that was because of your experience with Road Train and the other films that you had done that you knew that, Okay, as excited as I am to make this thing, I, I st- there's still some, uh, you know, logistical things that we need to organise. Can you can you talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, where where you felt like that or- pre that organisation was necessary, and where you feel like if I had my time again, I probably would have refocused my efforts on certain certain things. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, having done, I, I think it would have been much harder to to do this film like had I not done. A film like the right way, if you like, um, like a Screen Australia funded feature film before, um, and I suppose as well, you know, going through afters, you know, particularly back in the time when I went through afters, um, you know, everything's the, really compartmentalized into different roles. Yeah, right? and and you have a production manager that that's a real production manager. They bring in from the outside world, and and you have to hit your safety, you know, checklist and and that sort of stuff. That, all that stuff's important. You can't really get away, get around that for a film that's got, you know, fifty locations and like a cast of like seventy, you know, bit players or whatever. You just can't. But it was, um, you know, in, in, as well. This is kind of where the whole student kind of thing was great because. You know, a lot of the students uh, hadn't hadn't sort of had that like feature film experience before, so it was it was kind of good to be able to say we're going to do we, you know, even though we just all came out of film school, we're going to just do this as if we've always been doing this, and this is how you mm-hmm. do the feature film from the production office side of things, and everyone just went went so red hot hard at it and brought all of their experience from film school and everything to it and. You know, it was just everyone just banded together under difficult circumstances and and believed in the film and brought it there. You know, mm. for anyone who hasn't uh, seen the production diaries, they're they're really great because it kind of catalogues the, you know, the the pre production and the production of the film all the way up into the one of the first screenings. But um, I'm thinking now of the you know the first reading you had and you just mentioned the uh, the your cast and then all those bit players as well. What, how did you feel once you know you'd gotten everybody under the same roof, you know, all reading the script? What what was that like, and and what were the the notes and the lessons you were taking, you know, once you had that big cast reading? 
Well, you know, I mean, it's a troupe uh, of performers. Uh, it's a family that you've built. I think it happened on my birthday, actually. Now I, th- now I think about it. I think that was the case. And we, we ended up drinking in Bondi afterwards, um, which, again, is a very much something they do in the film, is drinking at the beach. So we had to um, bring everyone together um, you know, I mean, you always are surprised. You know, I suppose then that was before we'd really started rehearsals properly. And I think that was the start of going, holy shit, this isn't going to just happen. You know, the the performances don't create themselves. There's a lot of work for the actors to do to understand what's really going on in this really dense text that Stephen's written mm. in the play Drown. Um Everyone struggled with the with the verbiage, with the poetry of it, and so if I had a dollar for every time some actor told me, "Oh, my character wouldn't say this," I mean, please shoot me now. Uh, I appreciate the the sentiment behind that. You know, I'm really struggling with this line. Great, but um, once we we really had to kind of, we had to kind of resist the temptation to go, "Oh, well, we'll just change it then." You know, yeah, well, I, okay, well, it, this used to be a stage play. Now it's a film. We'll just adapt the dialogue to sound more naturalistic. No, I mean, that that sort of takes away some of the sort of magic of what, what I wanted to create, what Stephen was, you know, what Stephen had written, what Stephen wanted to create with the film as well. Um, so why do we say these things? Why do we speak in poetry? Where, do, where does this word come from? It's like every single thing we had to create a reference for, which we did over a very exhaustive uh, rehearsal period, you know, going back into the backstory, finding those kind of references. So I suppose it was that like, whoa, we've got a lot of work ahead of us, you know. Mm. The actors really went on the journey with it as well. I think that was when they went, oh, my God, you know, see, see you at – because we were at the Bondi Pavilion, we were rehearsing there as well. See you at Bondi Pavilion on Monday and we'll, the hard work starts. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I've found that a lot with um, – it's like, as you just said, o- often uh, – Actors sometimes do want to change things to make it easier, but or or they'll skip a full stop or they'll skip a comma or something. But if you challenge them and say, "Hey, that that full stop or that comma or that dash is there for a reason," particularly with you know, and they're happy to do it for text like Chekhov or or whatever. But you know, when you're really specific about it in the writing, they might push back. But once they commit to it, you know, and and justify it, there can often be a deeper. Um, they can go to a deeper level, you know, in their their character. As you so, what you're saying is they were sort of creating backstories and and rehearsing stuff that was extra to the film in order to, you know, solidify their characters. Is that sort of the experience you were having? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I wasn't going to be like anal about the the dialogue for for my own purposes, but the reality is, it is a text. It's a play, and and uh, Stephen is the producer of it and I, you know, he's trusting me with his work, you know, and I believe in the work. Um, but so, you know, yes, the work is is there. And, and look, of course, it, I don't want it to play if it's not going to play, but I want us to go on that journey. Mm. And the journey we went on was intense. Like we started like way back. I mean, because there are some flashbacks in the film that take the characters way back to when they were teenagers. So we, we kind of had to kind of go there and even further back. And... Um, and was that derived from the rehearsal process or that was already in the, the script? No, that was just rehearsal. So yeah. so we didn't touch the script during the rehearsal. We we did a completely improvised rehearsal process where we looked where we we sat down together and we worked out moments in the backstory of the characters that weren't in the script that we thought were important and connected to the text uh 
and or sometimes it was like going through the text, finding a moment where we don't get it. We don't get why I'd say that and saying, okay, let's create an improvisation that will address that question of why um, you say that thing. Um, so it was really the the performer's response to the text and then trying to answer that by creating a backstory. And I should say from that, you know, other discoveries, of course, inevitably are made that inform all sorts of choices on on the set. But, you know, that's kind of, I think, the thing with, with any film. But this one is such a, such a character-driven, performance-driven piece that, of course, the, the, the performances have got to drive the cinematography and the style. But then, you know, that's informed by the text. And it's, it's all, you know, it's a domino thing. It's all got to sort of fit in, you know. Mm. I think, um, like, th- there's definitely some poetic uh, lines or, or things that the guys say, but... I think one of the reasons it doesn't feel out of place is also the way in which like you shot it and and graded it like there's lots of magentas and cyans and um i guess it not being in a linear fashion it kind of feels like a bit of a a fever dream and it feels kind of um sort of ethereal once again like with with the grade um was that a conscious choice you were making of you know different scenes are going to have a very particular palette that will can, can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, your cinema, your approach as a cinematographer, um, amongst all, you know all those decisions being made? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a combination of, um, of sort of using what we what was around us because we obviously didn't really have much of a budget, so you you have to find a way to create spectacular production value uh you know obviously we we anyone wants their film to like travel the world and stuff like that and and to take the kind of local aspects of your culture and see them on foreign screens so you you need to give it a level of production value so uh, that was also on my mind in the scripting process uh with how do you know we don't want to put the flashbacks in a room okay so if you're gonna have a flashback put it in the middle of the Mardi Gras parade with 100,000 people or put it in a nightclub where there's a dance floor there and you've got this great lighting and stuff or, you know, put it in a surf life-saving thing on the beach at, during the day and and make the sky really pop, you know, and, and, and oversaturate everything. And so it sort of evolved through the writing process, I suppose. Mm. I mean, the grade was... Like that was always something I was really like specific to kind of get right. And again, it was like we got to post-production and we didn't really have the funds to do the grade like the way that I wanted to do it. So instead of going to like a post-production house, we just spent all that money that we, which was not very much uh, on, that we would have could have spent at a post-house just getting like the tools to do it ourselves and learning how to become colorists and things like that. Mm. So a lot of that was maybe really not, not being professional colorists and maybe pushing the envelope and like pushing stuff further than, you know, someone whose job it is to do coloring might feel comfortable. But, but it know. gives a really specific look and that's kind of what I liked about it. It's like you're, you're, you are shooting on these really iconic beaches, but it's not, um, it's not the postcard Bondi beach or, or whatever it is. It, it really feels like um, you're in a, a, a dreamlike world, which happens to be, you know, shot in Sydney, you know, I th- I'm thinking again of, uh, you know, in your production diary, you're at that uh, Sydney swimming pool and in the production video diary, you've got the, this amazing shot of the, the Sydney Harbour Bridge in the background, but you're specifically using that space uh, for the um, the locker room. So, you know, you were 
you were wanting to use the these iconic spots, but always in it never felt out of place or oh you're just doing this to capitalize on you know a, a particular <laughs> you know location you know what I mean it always felt of the piece yeah yeah that's interesting yeah I mean a lot of it too is like just uh looking at what's around us and and you know I would spend we'd spend like many hours like researching going out and street casting like in the gay bars around Sydney and you'd see cool stuff on the street you'd be like oh my god like you know there's some great stuff that we couldn't use because you could identify we used to Mm. go I used to take just me and some other like assistant out and we'd just go and shoot all around the place and find amazing things a lot of them we couldn't use like I say because it's like oh she's puking in a gutter and and we didn't get a release for yeah yeah (laughs) Hopefully she, you know, she'll see the film. That's a thing. Um, yeah, right. So, can you tell me? Um, I guess some of the audience for this podcast is also filmmakers and people wanting to go into their feature film or their their film. So, what were some of the lessons you were learning, particularly from um, both, as I said, the 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 model you were um, adopting with this particular project, and also just everything along the way. What what were the like? key things that you were learning um along this whole process oh goodness i mean the 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 big one is like fucking just do it like Mm. you know like i think the biggest obstacle to making a film is your own fear and often it's a fear of failure or whatever um you know i think i'd gotten to a point where so much time had passed since my first film i didn't I didn't care, you know, like it was, it was what's the worst that can happen. You make a film and fail, like, uh, or you don't make a film. It's better to make a film and fail, but, but it didn't like fail. I mean, you know, it shouldn't have, have, have uh, got the distribution uh, around the world that it did in, in, in some respects, because it was such a small kind of project, but, um, you know, it had, it, you know, it was a good, a good script from Stephen. Um, Matt's performance is really strong. We just stuck to that story. I don't think, you know, I did anything like spectacular aside from just commit to that story. Um, you know, and don't be afraid to 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 do multitasking. I think it's becoming much more of a thing now where filmmakers are not just directors, but they do other things as well. That's great because it saves you money if you're on a low budget film. It means it saves you time. There's less discussion. Um, you know, it's a really efficient way. It doesn't, not for every project, you know. And of course, there's nothing like having a, a, a very strong, amazing collaboration with someone who's brilliant in their role. Um, but for some projects, it's, it, you know, you don't need that if you're really clear on what you want. Um, yeah, I think some sometimes particularly like for people's first film or, or particularly film school, they, they get caught up in like the sort of accoutrements of filmmaking, whether it's the slate or, you know, I've got my... I've got my cinematographer, you know, and I've got my blah, blah, blah. But um, because people have sort of idealized I'm going to be a director and, you know, all the, the peripheral things around that. But I think when your focus becomes the piece that you're making, um, that's when you can, you know, get your project made. Yeah, I mean, I actually found it boring when I, when I first did my first feature film because I'm more used to like running and gunning it and, you know, and I remember being on the first feature film and like I'm sitting on a chair, I'm sitting on a fucking chair watching a monitor, watching people making my movie sitting at a monitor. You know, I was like, this is going to kill me. I can't sit still, you know. What can I do? And, you know, my whole thing became just hanging out with the cast, you know. Oh, just, you know, and they, they tell me when they're ready. Fuck, like, I don't know. Like, that's great. Like, mm. that was amazing. And the DP, you know, I had on that film, Carl Robinson, he's an absolute genius. 
and the film has its own kind of you know it's a different kind of filmmaking but you know i i'd prefer to be you know the to be face. absolutely yeah. you know yeah i don't know it's just me add yeah. <laughs> no that's cool i i think i'm have a similar uh, sensibility so um once you you know you edited the film and and graded it and um did a bunch of tutorials and you know as you said had graded it all together can you talk to me a little bit about the you know your approach to distribution you know you had this built-in audience from um the crowdfunding campaign and everyone that had come on board what were some of the decisions you were making you know once you had completed the film itself yeah well we uh during production had um accepted an offer from a world sales company and we were very surprised how quickly they sold the film uh, much more quickly than we thought, which kind of put pressure on us to 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 start the distribution strategy locally because we knew it would be out on 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 DVD or you know whatever before we would like it to be, yeah. uh, which which was you know so we were chasing the clock, racing the clock in that respect. Because you were sort of wanting to reward an Australian audiences yeah. with a, the premiere that was the plan yeah. was was to take it a bit slower and and we always wanted to do because we crowdfunded it so we wanted to get those crowdfunders very involved in word of mouth marketing and then actually do cinema on demand crowdsourced cinema screenings uh through tug which was the plan um you know, so we were a little bit, you know, sort of, sort of, you had to move a bit quickly. We ended up uh, because it was coming out in other territories. We we accepted a offer from the Mardi Gras Film Festival to give it the world premiere, which was, you know, huge two screenings uh, in a like a thousand seat theater, which sold out, which was a great like, you know, start of the yeah. thing. Um, you know, in retrospect, it also sort of maybe um, made it. It sort of sealed its. Uh, I won't say sealed its its fate, but it sort of made it into made it perceived as an exclusively LGBT film, which I suppose is in some respects fair enough. Um, but you know, it's also quite different to the run of the mill LGBT film. Um, you know, so that so then from there we we started on our on our uh, crowdsourced uh, tug screenings around Australia, and um, label distribution is our local distributor, and so they were simultaneously busily working on the the DVD release uh, and you know various other you know sort of little theatrical moments. So we actually, uh, and then of course um, we didn't have the sort of um, a, you know a week booked at the Dendi type thing we were more like we would do you know Parramatta Bondi Junction George Street you know sort of take it around make it an event do a Q&A that mm. sort of stuff try and get people out of the house and then we actually um, because the, this the, you know we kept on finding the problem with cinema on demand is that is that you might sell out the the the, the theater or not sell out the theater and then you've still got people saying oh I missed it when's the next one and then you send them to the next one but then it's not convenient for them there's not that thing of like oh it's on you know for a whole week just go to it so that's when we decided to create our own cinema in the basement here at JJ Splice which mm -hmm. wasn't all that hard because it's it's a you know it's a space that we would used to screen the film for test screenings and things like that and we just thought let's put it on like every friday um for 30 people and let's do this kind of you know really intense q a where we bring out different guests from the who worked on the film serve wine screen special features do a short film you know and That's kind really of cool. make it into a thing a yeah bit of community yeah 
It was really, really nice. And and it was very, like, it reminded me of, like, going to some of these, like, really small theatres. Like, I grew up watching La Mama Theatre in, in, in Melbourne, which is, like, a super small thing. But just really great because everyone experiences the film so differently in a small kind of room. And to literally welcome people and, like, make the popcorn. Um, I think making the popcorn for your own film, there's something really, it's, it's a little bit like, sh- you know, shooting the film and trying to learn how to grade it. Like, it just felt like the... Yeah. Ultimate way. For anyone who thinks they're wearing all the hats, I think you've got one up on them if you're making, literally making the popcorn. Yeah, man, I got a popcorn machine on eBay. I, I make very good popcorn. Uh, yeah, so it was fun. And then, of course, within that, you go, you know, you're going like to go to just take it to Italy or or some festival. So it's really, it was really quite quite good. I thought. I, th- I mean, like when I say it was a good distribution, it didn't get like a big distribution deal. But um, well, it, it was know, finding its audience. It, it was finding like. an audience, and, and it got distribution in lots of different countries. And I I was pleased with it because I got to sit there and watch it get consumed, which for me was a huge like special privilege. Really, mm. it's. It's interesting because I think it's one of those things that like intellectually, you know, the rest of the world's out there, but, you know, it's probably not until you were going to those countries, sitting in on those screenings that you were like, oh, wow, it's not, you know, it's not just this little indie thing that's going to go as far as, you know, two, two circles of friends, you know, away from me, but, you know, that it was, you know, resonating with people that might, you know, may have never met if you had not have made this this film Can, yeah, yeah yeah i mean we, we get some we, you know we've had like a few crazy like crazy super fans who are you know like they're buying all the di- like every version of the dvd and every blu-ray and things and they're in some i don't know middle of nowhere in america or something like that and it's like oh that's really nice to have that connection you know yeah right so when you see what people say online and stuff and it's it's quite it's quite interesting mm. yeah can you um you know you'd sort of touch on that there were different reactions in different countries. Can you just unpack that a little bit for me? You know, what it was like in America versus Europe. Yeah, I, th- I felt like, um, strangely, in America, like people saw the humor behind the film a lot a lot more. Interesting. I think it's a pretty funny film in some ways and there's irony behind it that, that I don't know. I mean, it's funny because in the past, I've never really thought that Americans get irony. Mm. But maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe it's a... Anyway, it was much lighter than, than I had expected. I thought it would be very, very heavy. Whereas in Italy, it was like super serious and heavy and like, you know, oh my God. And everyone was shocked that because Italians think that they're like, the you know, they've got a lot of problems with homophobia and they don't have uh, marriage equality. But they were just shocked to find that Australia is kind of in lots of ways worse you know, in that mm. area than than Australia is. That's where, that's where I got so strangled by a woman at the <laughs> film festival. Like legitimately strangled or she was sort of uh, miming, you know, how... In, you no, know. she was like screaming at me Jeez. in Italian and putting her hands to my throat kind of thing. It was Thinking you were advocating that kind of thing or that she was... Why was she angry? I think she was, she was angry because she hated Len. Right. And she sort of felt, you know, how dare you, you know, kind of present this character how dare you kind of let it glorify him or something like that i don't think that the film's glorifying him yeah not at all but she was super angry lost in translation kind of thing well i don't know i mean um i think she i I just think in in italy it was a very serious Mm. sort of cinephile vibe interesting yeah and what about um i'll be careful how i say this but i guess you know you you mentioned that it found its uh LGBTI audience, um, but how was the response from 
uh, I'm doing quote marks in the air right now, you know, mainstream audiences or, or people who, um, you know, just your average punter. Straight audiences. <laughs> Straight <laughs> audiences or just your, you know, your, your average punter, you know, who knew nothing about the film and was coming in and, you know, some, someone like my mum, for example, you know, what, were you getting any mums or dads who were just coming in and uh, experiencing it and what was their reaction? Yeah, I've, a little bit. Um Again, pretty much, I think it's a stronger reaction from, like a, st- a stronger, more positive reaction from women, uh, you know, because I think women are, uh, we, you know, <laughs> women are, you can't, obviously, but s- some women are very interested in what drives the that psych- male psychology of violence. Mm. I mean, a lot of women have, have you know, a son or a brother or, or a husband or whatever who have, have well, oh, that who aggressive. well maybe just who have experienced this on on either end of it you know mm. and i think like the investigation of what what drives that is is interesting more so to women than you know for men it's it's more a question of they have to they're asked to look inside of themselves and mm. and ask that which is uncomfortable and unsettling yeah. i think yeah but i mean yeah, like mostly we haven't had too many like you know surprisingly people who've like just super been so violently offended by it and been violent just just one to my knowledge just that one Italian woman. to my knowledge shout out to <laughs> that Italian woman if she's listening to this podcast <laughs> hope you're doing well yes um, yeah awesome so um, I guess we're coming to the the end of this but is there anything else you wanted to um, mention or touch on you know perhaps advice or um, thoughts you have on, on the process of filmmaking. You know, you've made two features now. Any, anything else you want to leave people with um, in terms of just approaching an independent production? Um, look, I, you know, I kind of touched on it before, but I'd say, you know, be fearless. I think, I think we've got to tell stories that are unlike the, you know, in a way we've got to, be a movement that fights back against the status quo storytelling because mm. the sorts of things we're seeing in theatres, what cinema has become, it's so homogenous. It's the same story over and over again. I think cinema's in a bad place from a creative perspective, but there's this amazing hope in the form of people doing it themselves, but doing it well and doing it differently and not not rehashing these kind of mainstream, you know, cliched stories, but but speaking about themselves and their own experience with passion and truth from the heart, and you know, telling the stories of you know of of you know diverse populations and stories that no one in Hollywood is going to uh, be interested in telling, um, and I think it's it's important, like for the sake of the art of cinema and for the sake of the audiences and uh you know there's no reason not to just get out there and and make make that awesome movie awesome and and what is it about cinema that you think is is um why why have you sort of committed your life to filmmaking and 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 cinema what is it at its best for you um it's i think it's a mirror really it's about seeing some part of yourself that you didn't even know was there reflected back at you and going, ah, oh, you know, that ability that, that cinema has to peer under the, under the rock, if you like, in, you know, the, the, that is all the things that you put up 
to create your identity and to keep you from, you know, what's really going on. Um, you know, I, I, th I think it's, it's when you immerse yourself in that world and you, it's very, very insightful. It's therapy, mm. you know, and, uh, I think it's. I think for me, it cuts both ways. It's therapy when you watch an amazing movie that that transports you in that way. But it's also therapy creating one. Um, so I think it's yeah, yeah. I think that's something that that I need for my mental health. Interesting. And um, so you mentioned you know, Gus Drown is uh, as great as it is. It is it's very intense. You mentioned that perhaps your next project might be a little bit lighter. Do you have? Um before we started recording, you'd sort of mentioned that, uh, you know, you're going to be working on another feature film soon. Is there anything you can sort of uh, tell the audience about now or, or, you know, will you be adopting the same sort of crowdfunding model with that? What What's uh, next for you? Well, there's, there's a couple of things. One's a much more um, conventional approach to filmmaking. Um, uh, more along the lines of, of of your kind of road train, but with a you know a bit more soul uh, and personality. Um, and the other one is sort of like just oh, it's it's like I kind of feel I kind of feel very drawn to doing something um, in the unconventional way, like drown, just because I learned so much from it, and I just feel I could do it so much better, uh, you know, so much better if I had another go at it. Um, and you know, I really, I've, I've sort of been really trying to get like a like a sort of more affirming kind of story, but it's oh, it's really keep going hard. to that dark place. Yeah, because like I say, it is kind of therapy, you know. And um, you know, I I do I want to sort of like make something that's that's kind of empowering, but but I also really want I you know I I don't want to make a film that's like oh yeah that's that's nice you know I want to make a film that hits you in the face um mm. i just need to make sure it's like it's like being hit with a pillow instead of a a, a brick you, you know? want it to challenge people <laughs> but you also want it to be accessible yeah. Right? yeah that's the plan but certainly definitely you know really excited you know want to do something that's aesthetically uh adventurous and certainly musically uh you know music's always a big part of it for me and um that's definitely uh going to be a, a part of the next one as well yeah I just want to push you on this one thing though, because you just said, uh, you know, you do it better, and I'm I'm really intrigued. What um, I'm intrigued by what you think, you know, in the process, what you would improve, what you would do better. What are the things that are coming to your mind right now that you're like, oh, if I only knew that, then you know, oh. I, I would do it differently this way. There's like a million producing and distribution uh, things, like on the on the sort of uh, business office type, oh, a million things that I now know uh, about how to do it better, particularly with distribution, because um, you know it is quite easy for you to sort of lose some of the control as to how your film is distributed. Um, and uh, and then I just think, you know, I mean, seriously, like it was, it was such a long process editing that film. I was a different person as an editor. You know, like I, I can cut, you know, I can cut a, a a short film in a fraction of the time that, you know, uh, same with everything, cinematography. I mean, you know, I, since Drown, it's really inspired me. I mean, I've, I've really, um, you know, I've, I've reignited my passion for cinematography. I've been shooting a lot of stuff, um, very different, you know, approach to that. Just, just I'm a much better technician, if nothing else. Mm. Um, you know, I, yeah. And, and I just sort of, I just think I, I can do it quicker and better. 
and um, yeah, and smaller as well. I mean, we shot for sixty days. I mean, that's ridiculous. Who shoots for sixty days on a no-budget film? It's, it's just idiotic. You it's know, amazing you managed to keep everyone on board for that long. They were great people. They were they're just amazing people who are now um, out in the industry themselves. Have, mm. Some of them having amazing careers. One of them's just shot. Kane Taylor, our associate producer, has uh, just sorry co-producer. Kane Taylor, our co-producer, has just wrapped his first feature film as producer just this week. It's very oh, exciting. Very proud. Which one's that? Um, it's a film that I. It's a, set on a bus, and uh, Matt oh, yeah. is a is a associate producer is that as well. Dave Fairhurst. Dave Fairhurst is the director. Yeah, yeah right. It looks like an exciting film. Dave, if you are listening to this, I have not yet messaged you, but I want you to be on the podcast. <laughs> I think you should. I want to know yeah. what's with that film because the set looks incredible. It and does, I, doesn't it? It looks like they're using rear projection on the bus, which yeah. is going to be amazing. Yeah, and I, he actually just bought a bus for the film. Good on him. <laughs> that was like part of his budget he literally bought a bus so fantastic that's commitment so now the guy's got a bus you know yeah. he can do special screenings in the bus you know well this may, might make you laugh one of his uh, kickstarter rewards seems to have been you know if you donate twenty five thousand dollars you get the bus at the end of wow. end of the film so oh i should take him up on that yeah <laughs> you've got to sort of spare 25 <laughs> grand lying around um awesome dean so if people want to check out more of your work um and connect with you where's the best place to do that um, well, you can see Drown at drownthemovie.com. Um, we are JJ Splice Films on Facebook. And, um, yeah, and JJ Splice is a, is a production company. Come by and say hello. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I'm feeling pretty good. How are you feeling? Yeah, no, th- you've taken me back into a dark place, Chris. So, um, yeah, but, but I'll, <laughs> I'll be okay. Thank you for, for your very insightful questions. No, I, I ramble a bit, but it was, it was a lot of fun to, uh, to uh, catch up with you again. It was very good to see you and um, after so many years. So, so exciting to, to, to see you on the podcast and see you doing all these cool things. It's great. Cool. Thanks so much, Dean. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much for listening to the Stories Through the Camera podcast. Please don't forget to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. I'd really appreciate it if you did, and I'd love to hear any feedback you might have. Don't forget to check out our website at www.storiesthroughthecamera.com. Hope you have a great one, and I'll catch you on the next episode.